Welcome, this is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 48 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Our episode today is a mid-year review of FCPA enforcement issues. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining me today on Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, a podcast focused on the legal and compliance industry. Today's podcast is an interview with Tom Fox, uh, and in this interview, we review FCPA enforcement for 2018 so far. And I always enjoy getting together with Tom and re- discussing FCPA enforcement issues and current trends, and I, I'm sure you'll enjoy the conversation. Interestingly enough, today's podcast is also sponsored by Tom Fox, who has released his new comprehensive book, The Compliance Handbook. I would urge you to order a copy, take a look at it. It's a terrific resource for every compliance professional. Thank you, Mike. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'm extraordinarily pleased to announce the publication of my latest book, The Complete Compliance Handbook. This one-volume compendium provides you the most up-to-date advice on what constitutes a best practices compliance program. I bring together the top ideas, the top commentators, the top techniques, and topics that you can incorporate into your compliance program, literally in a 31-day format to more fully operationalize your company's compliance regime. It incorporates the Department of Justice's 2017 Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs and information from the new FCPA Corporate Enforcement Policy. If you want one volume to guide you in operationalizing compliance, this is it. It's available starting May 21 on Amazon.com. If you'd like an autographed copy, please order one from my website, www.fcpacompliancereport.com, and I will mail it to you. This is Tom Fox. I hope you will check it out. I know you will find it useful. Okay, everyone. Well, well I want to start off by welcoming our uh, guest, Tom Fox. Tom, it's always good to record with you, uh, and, um, and I'm glad you could make yourself available today to look at the first half of FCPA enforcement in 2018. Welcome, and uh, congratulations on your new book as well. Uh, I know it's really uh, it's fantastic, and uh, glad to see it's uh, it's you know popular and people are are getting it out there in the industry. But welcome. Well, thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike. It was uh, number one in uh, business and ethics on Amazon its first two weeks. So uh, very pleased with uh, with the results and the uh, how uh, the audience has uh, taken to it. So thank you. Yep. Well, it's well deserved. Well deserved. So I thought, Tom, I'm looking forward to it, but uh, in terms of discussing the first half of FCPA enforcement, um, and then I was going to offer some observations, then uh, turn it over to you for a little bit. Um, From my perspective, uh, basically, the first half of 2018 confirmed really the same trends from 2017, and if you want to go back even further, uh, FCPA enforcement is here to stay. Um, and FCPA enforcement is continuing at a robust rate, and frankly, there seems to be little that has changed uh, since the new administration took power. Um, And I've consistently pointed out as an old government attorney that the most reliable indicator of any enforcement trend is resources. Look where the government is putting its resources. So here we have an expanded number, increased numbers of prosecutors and FBI agents with three squads assigned to FCPA uh, enforcement programs. Once these people are assigned and allocated, prosecutors and agents have to perform. And I always say they have to produce cases. That's how they're evaluated, and that's what they do on a day-to-day basis. So unless there is some big significant change in policy or reallocation of these resources, FCPA enforcement is going to go uh, strong and it's going to go steady. And it's almost becoming, um, you know, an international trend. It's just we're a part of a fabric now of an international enforcement uh, regime with law enforcement uh, and prosecutors sharing information, teaching each other techniques. And we're seeing uh, we're seeing sort of the fruits of that uh, effort through the years now. So. 
And I always find it interesting, Tom, that people try to say one year is more than another. The way I look at it is there's just a there's a sort of pipeline of cases and you arbitrarily, you know, end it at a year and it may be the numbers are up or down depending upon where the cases are in this sort of process. So to me, whether numbers go up or down from year to year is not as significant uh, unless there was, let's say, over five years, there was a drop significant, you know, drop, um, you know, consistently over those five years. And frankly, I think com- commentators uh, spend too much time seeking to, you know, categorize or identify trends by each year. And to me, that is by definition arbitrary, since cases go up, drop uh, based on where they are in the pipeline. The only exception, and I, I don't know what you think about this, Tom, uh, that I observed is when the Obama administration came to the end, there seemed to be a push by DOJ and the SEC, at least the people, the political people, to resolve a number of cases um, before the Trump administration uh, assumed power. And I also think there was sort of a sh- there was a transition, um, sort of slowdown in the first half of the 2017, and that to me regularly occurs when you bring in new political people to take over, and uh, there's sort of a transition period where things get sort of backed up and slowed down. Um, But anyways, those were sort of, uh, you know, the trends. Uh, At least the biggest thing to me is that this is going to keep going on. People have to, you know, proactively address these risks and uh, and watch out to see what new sort of skill sets or developments are occurring in other countries or coordination among countries and things like that. But anyways, what do you what did you see, Tom? What's your perspective on that? So, Mike, um, I also agree that uh, the first half of 2018 showed us uh, continued consistency by the Department of Justice. The only thing I would add to um, your recitation was, in addition to having a new administration come in, we had uh, a pilot program in place that the new administration wanted to evaluate, and that was the FCPA pilot program. So that evaluation took some time, Um, and that evaluation led to the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy announced by uh, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein in November of 2017 uh, incorporated into the U.S. Attorney's Manual. Um, But that policy, a new addition to the U.S. Attorney's Manual, in my mind, was absolutely consistent with not only the FCPA pilot program, but enforcement actions going back to to 2014 involving Parker drilling and, and uh, Hewlett Packard and uh, the uh, the FCPA unit under both Chuck DeRoss and Pat Stokes. So I saw a lot of consistency. I saw, but um, and then the other point uh, or the other thing that happened uh, policy wise in May was the announcement of what's called the anti-piling on policy. And that was also formalized in the U.S. Attorney's Manual. But that was also consistent with uh, the remarks and actions of both the Department of Justice and Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, at least from 2016 going forward. Uh, I heard uh, Pat Stokes, excuse me, uh, Dan Kahn, current head of the FCPA unit, and Kara Brockmar, former head of the FCPA unit at the Securities and Exchange Commission, talk about the one pie policy, where uh, they would strive to have one pie of enforcement fines and penalties for a company if that company self-disclosed to uh, regulators outside the United States and then cooperated along the lines of uh, those required by the Department of Justice. So once again, uh, I, I see consistency. I see consistency over several years now, and I see consistency also in a way that the, both the Department of Justice uh, and the Securities and Exchange Commission have greater transparency, greater communication to uh, companies, uh, their outside counsel and compliance practitioners about their expectations, and not only their expectations around what constitutes compliance, what constitutes cooperation, but also where the government uh, is interested and things that are important to the government in terms of uh, regulatory or enforcement action. Obviously, the most recent would be the Credit Suisse, and we can talk about that uh, perhaps a little bit later. But it, it was really consistency, and uh, as you said, uh, the Department of Justice, uh, I think, is still uh, going to aggressively prosecute FCPA cases. Um, I think with the new FCPA. 
PA corporate enforcement policy, at least in my mind, there's real incentives for companies uh, to uh, meet the four requirements to obtain a declination, which are self-disclosure, extraordinary cooperation, extraordinary, uh, ex, uh, extensive remediation, and then profit disgorgement. And we can talk about that in the context of the Dun & Bradstreet settlement. So overall consistency, and I would also throw in consistency with uh, the Yates memo announced September uh, 2015. I think this year we saw the first six months uh, uh, follow the second half of last year's trend of uh, individual prosecutions and that the Department of Justice uh, will go after uh, not only individuals, but companies will turn over information on individuals. So a lot of consistency um, and uh, not to delve too much into the political world, but I think uh, the America Firsters in the administration see the FCPA as part of their uh, weaponized trade war going forward. So I don't see any downturn in FCPA enforcement. And if the United States uses the FCPA as part of its weaponized trade war, I'm sure you will see other countries uh, respond in kind with their own anti-corruption laws. Well, uh, I agree with uh, everything you said there, Tom. And I, I do want to get back uh, at some point. Let's go. We'll talk about Credit Suisse and Dun & Bradstreet, because I know you have some thoughts on that. But let me pick up for a second on the individual FCPA prosecutions in the Yates memo. I think uh, from going back to the Yates memo, it's definitely had an influence in the Department of Justice. Um, in the car safety case, auto safety cases being the Volkswagen uh, fraud case, as well as the Takata airbags case, we had individuals who were prosecuted. Interestingly, though, in the FCPA area, I do think that over the last few years, we've seen a definite change uh, in the increased number of individuals. So, for example, let's start, uh, if you look at, uh, before we get the Petavesa case, for example, uh, we just had, I think it was five, uh, six individuals who, or five defendants who were charged, but not only with um, uh, FCPA conspiracy, but also charged with money laundering. And um, this case is sort of a, and it, it actually is emanating and being run out of Houston in the uh, U.S. attorneys down there, office down there. And I think, uh, I can't remember the exact number, but there at least have been 10 or 11 people who pled guilty, as I recall, before this sort of bigger case was brought uh, against five defendants, several of whom were in Spain, uh, all all being uh, run out of the PDVSA, you know, these are people connected to PDVSA or even people who are former officials at uh, PDVSA. So, uh, and they've been charged uh, in the guilty pleas that have gone on. Most of them are about FCPA conspiracies, but now we're seeing money laundering charges against former uh, employees or officials at PDVSA because they obviously can't be charged with uh, the uh, FCPA. Of violations. So I think four of the five de defendants were arrested in Spain in October. One remains at large, but they're being extradited. They're in the process of being extradited. One, I think, was even a U.S. citizen, um, and they're being uh, extradited back to uh, Houston. But we see sort of the continuing efforts there uh, in terms of a very strong case being put together uh, against Petavesa. Now, the other case that I think is significant to look at is uh, the Rolls-Royce case, where um, we've, I think we're up to, they just recently, in May of 2018, DOJ returned this uh, superseding indictment that charged two new defendants. And I think the, leader, the lead defendant from before uh, was a guy, I think, in Greece who uh, has still not been uh, caught. But they had gotten five guilty pleas uh, before that, and they just added two new individuals in connection with the, uh, this case. And the important point to me out of the Rolls-Royce case is that this was just one aspect of the overall enforcement. This related to the uh, pipeline between Kazakhstan and uh, China, I believe. Am I right? I think. And so what, or China and Kazakhstan, yeah. Uh, and it was the transportation of natural gas. And um, the thing about it is the SFO has the bulk of the case, and they're bringing cases against individuals, uh, and they resolved the case uh, there uh, with Rolls-Royce. But it shows 
again, that the U.S. part, the DOJ, took a chunk of the case and then have charged uh, a number of individuals. So I think both of these trends to me show Yates is here to stay. Individuals are getting prosecuted in a more aggressive way. But what do you think in terms of individuals and criminal prosecutions? So I guess, Mike, uh, I'd like to take Padavesa perhaps from a little bit different angle uh, because it's a big interest to me because uh, the uh, individuals have largely been in Houston. There's a significant Venezuelan expat community here, and apparently uh, the former Padavesa officials who thought they could uh, um, either extort money from U.S. companies or be paid bribes and come to the United States and live happily ever after, uh, uh, fortunately turning out not to be true. But for me, it drove home the the point that for every uh, bribe paid, there has to be money laundered somewhere. Right. Um, so this is not a ten dollars to get in, uh, you know, a passport control. This is not a hundred dollar or a cash facilitation payment. This is literally thousands of dollars that has to be put somewhere. And unless you're going to take bags of cash across the border, and we have seen that in some instances, but that was not what was done here. And the money had to be laundered. And that has led to international uh, investigations and enforcement actions. Obviously, Switzerland is still a big place uh, for criminals to go to try to hire, hide money. But uh, they apparently have a very good working relationship now with Washington regulators. So we're seeing more and more uh, individuals prosecuted uh, for the money laundering component. And uh, that bookend to an FCPA enforcement, I think, is an interesting development and one um, that uh, uh, will bear further watching. Also, uh, to your point on the uh, – some uh, Pettivation individuals uh, resided or immigrated to countries other than the United States. So we've got cooperation from a wide variety of European countries uh, to not only arrest but then extradite to the United States individuals who have not paid bribes but have received bribes. So once again, uh, those were charged with money laundering and have been brought to justice here in the United States. Um, it drives home an additional point for me for the compliance practitioners listening to us that if you have done business in uh, Venezuela over the last 10 years, you need to get down and scrub your compliance program. You need to scrub all of your businesses in Venezuela to see if uh, there's any possibility that uh, a bribe was paid because uh, the United States government is looking very, very closely at, at Venezuela. Obviously, the Maduro government is antithetical to the United States. So um, there are a large number of economic sanctions in place. And the United States government, uh, in my opinion, would uh, also be looking at U.S. companies uh, who have done business in Venezuela uh, quite closely now. So really a lot to unpack simply with the uh, 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 within the context of the Yates memo, but more specifically around uh, the individuals uh, indicted and have, who have pled guilty uh, who were former Pettivation employees. Yeah, I totally, I, I mean, I completely agree with that, Tom. And the, the thing about it is Spain, um, I think some of these uh, former Pettivation officials went to Spain and got caught in some money laundering activities because they were bringing, like you said, they were bringing so much money over there as the you know, illegal proceeds from bribes that they had taken uh, while at Pettivesa. So, um, and, and that's a good point. And one one thing to keep in mind is money laundering under the guidelines and by statute is a much more serious offense uh, than uh, an FCPA bribery case, uh, single, you know, single act. So that's another thing to take into account. Um, well, one thing I thought we, we mentioned, or I briefly mentioned the SFO and um, and uh, one thing that I know everybody sort of followed, uh, the SFO at least is, to, from my perspective, we're seeing, you know, finally the maturation or a little bit more of their program uh, in the UK Bribery Act becoming more aggressive. Um, I, I actually happen to think that the way they do their deferred prosecution agreements, having a more active role played by the judge in the review and approval is a good thing. I've, I kind of feel like the United States uh, court system doesn't uh, supervise the deferred prosecution agreements as much as they should or could. Um, but from the SFO perspective, we're seeing, you know, sort of the fruits of their coordination and their sort of maturation 
they're bringing more criminal cases. They're, you know, uh, they were sort of the lead agency in the Rolls Royce case, at least in terms of the, the amount of the settlement uh, that they took in terms of penalties. But uh, one thing I know you you were interested in, Tom, was uh, in what happened in uh, this was the first time that uh, somebody tried to run with the defense of, uh, you know, adequate procedures in terms of a compliance defense in under a Section 7 case under the UK Bribery Act. Right. So I thought this was very interesting, Mike. We had the first criminal conviction for failure to prevent bribery, and it was a company called CPS. Um, it was a very, I don't want to say confusing set of facts, but uh, the company self-disclosed. And frankly, I find it very difficult to find incentive to self-disclose if you're going to be criminally indicted and criminally tried. Nevertheless, um, CPS did self-disclose, and they were uh, taken to trial. Their defense was basically, hey, we're a small company, and we told people not to pay bribes. Why are you going after us? And rightly, that defense was ineffective. Um, So uh, a very important criminal conviction, although CPS is in receivership, so there was no one really left to uh, to pick up the pieces. Uh, it does set a precedent going forward. So when you have a conviction now on the books and with no appeal for failure to prevent bribery, I think that's a pretty powerful tool uh, that the Serious Fraud Office has. As, uh, and it's within the larger context that you mentioned of a, a continued maturation of the SFO. They had a huge win, obviously, with Rolls-Royce. That has continued over. They have a new director uh, with much fanfare. They have a new uh, renewed, uh, not renewed, but additional funding. And I think uh, we're going to see more uh, prosecutions and deferred prosecutions uh, agreements out of the the SFO going forward. And that's certainly uh, an interesting trend uh, for this year. One uh, in keeping sort of on the international theme. Uh, Tom, uh, there were two countries that I know you've written about on your blog uh, and in terms of uh, countries to sort of watch out for. And you particularly, I think, got into the scandal that occurred in uh, South Africa. Uh, and I've, you've also been you've also written about Malaysia in the in the, the big case there. The, I, I always get the initials wrong, but one MDB. But right. uh, what what are the trends that, and what what are the significance of those two countries and the activity that's going on there now in sort of the anti-corruption world? So uh, in South Africa, we had actual regime change, uh, uh, peaceful uh, through the democratic process. Of the head of the or the uh, African National Congress changed uh, changed presidents basically, and um, the new president uh, has become much more aggressive in fighting the corruption alleged to have started under the prior president, President Zuma. Um, We also had a very unusual situation where basically you had state ownership or state government captured by uh, private individuals uh, through corruption or alleged corruption, the Gupta family. Uh, If you have done business in South Africa over the past 10 years, certainly in the last five years, you need to absolutely take a look at those uh, business operations. Uh, the number of U.S. companies already ensnared in this, um, KPMG, uh, McKinsey, I think is is in for a very difficult, uh, challenging time uh, from their uh, work for uh, uh, electric company, a state-owned enterprise uh, that was captured by uh, the Gupta family, and uh, they. Uh, uh, you're required in South Africa to use a minority-owned business, uh, and many of those were captured by the Gupta family and their connections as well. So a uh, very significant uh, regime change, which is going to lead to uh, quite a bit of uh, uh, investigations by the South African officials. Um, in Malaysia, you did correctly identify the uh, scandal. It involves the Sovereign Wealth Fund, 1MDB, and there you had uh, basically the president and his cronies are alleged to have used the Sovereign Wealth Fund as their own personal piggy bank. And unlike other Sovereign Wealth Funds in the Middle East, uh, this Sovereign Wealth Fund was created uh, without oil revenues. Um, So Saudi Arabia, Libya, I mean, you name the country that has a Sovereign Wealth Fund, Norway, they have real oil revenues that back up 
their sovereign wealth funds, and they had money from those oil revenues. Malaysia decided to have a sovereign wealth fund that was based on future oil revenues, which means you have to have a bond offering. It's it's like any other opportunity where uh, you put up assets, you borrow money, and then you pay back the money you borrowed uh, in the form of bonds uh, with the assets that you have or you anticipate you will have. And so a billions of dollars was funded into uh, the Malaysian Sovereign Wealth Fund, 1MDB, uh, and billions was stolen out of it uh, by alleged to have been stolen, I should say. So um, you had uh, companies like Goldman Sachs who did the bond offerings, and now they're under scrutiny. Uh, you had companies um, uh, performing uh, audits uh, uh, on 1MDB um, and giving them clean audits. Uh, if you have done any business with a Malaysian Sovereign Wealth Fund, you need to start scrubbing those. You need to take a look at it. Uh, the U.S. government has been incre- uh, incredibly aggressive at seeking uh, repatriation and return of uh, forfeiture of assets that were stolen from 1MDB. And that was before they had the uh, regime change. Once again, peaceful democratic process of a new president coming in, throwing out the old president. The old president has now been in his wife replaced under house arrest. I think it was uh, about $200 million worth of goods and cash was taken out of their mansion uh, after they were uh, uh, removed from office or, or not elected again. So once again, if you are in uh, doing business in Malaysia uh, with any part of the government, uh, you need to, to take a look very closely at those. And, and I want to add that uh, um, we had an enforcement action uh, literally this month. So it's not in the first half of the year. It's in July, but with Jim Beam and Beam's successor in India. And I think that really points to uh, we've seen a series of SEC actions for third parties and distributors in India, uh, and that uh, the U.S. government's really taking a close look, closer look at uh, uh, that country because of uh, pervasive and systemic corruption uh, within the bureaucracy. Mm, interesting. And I mean, we've seen uh, more enforcement actions, at least uh, from my perspective, in India lately, uh, and, uh, and particularly, obviously, in the uh, liquor industry or whatever you call it, spirits, because of the amount of regulation there uh, in India. I mean, everything is regulated. One, uh, one other one case I wanted to take a moment just to talk about, Tom, because I think uh, in terms of you know, a new international player or somebody that we can, we should watch over um, is, uh, you know, sort of at the end of the first half here of the year, we had the cases against uh, the settlements uh, with Society General and Leg Mason for the Qaddafi area era uh, bribery payments to Libyan officials. So there was a settlement, uh, just to provide background to everybody, uh, Society General paid a total of $860 million in criminal penalties, uh, $585 million for FCPA violations, $275 million in a separate investigation for manipulation of the London Interbank Offered Rates, LIBOR, um, and a Society General subsidiary had to plead guilty to FCPA charges. Um, they agreed to a three-year uh, deferred prosecution agreement uh, and doesn't include a compliance monitor. And um, in, a, uh, in addition, uh, Leg Mason, the next day, entered, which is a private equity fund actually from Maryland, I think, uh, which is, uh, agreed to pay $64 million in criminal penalties and disgorgement and they were able to earn a non-prosecution agreement for participation in the same uh, bribery scheme in Libya. Um, and as I recall, uh, uh, Society General did not receive credit for voluntary disclosure. Uh, it was obviously very serious conduct because it was over $90 million, I think, paid in bribes. Uh, they provided substantial but not full cooperation because uh, they were slow to investigate and cooperate at the early stages of the investigation. Uh, and they implemented significant remediation uh, in connection with, uh, uh, with the case. Um, and they received a 20% uh, reduction from the bottom of the uh, guideline range. Now, Leg Mason earned a non-prosecution agreement, and the 
following factors were cited, which was they didn't voluntarily disclose the conduct, but they fully cooperated. But they really noted that the misconduct in the bribery scheme involved uh, mid to lower level employees of a subsidiary called uh, Permal. And uh, they weren't the primary actor in originating and leading the bribery scheme. Uh, and they, the illegal profits that Leg uh, Mason earned were like one-tenth of, uh, less than one-tenth of the profits earned by Society General. Um, and so they received a 25% reduction in the fine uh, from that. But the interesting uh, part of the case was, uh, uh, and I wanted to get your comments on this, Tom, was the role of the French agency, uh, financial regulatory agency, Society General ended up paying $292 million, which was going to be half of the uh, penalty of the $585 million uh, that Society General uh, reached with the Justice Department. And I guess that's, you know, that they were going to get credit for that. Um, and the Justice Department noted that this was the first coordinated resolution of a case with the French authorities. And ultimately, the impact of that was, um, and for some reason, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but they did, even though this conduct was pretty pervasive, they were slow to cooperate, they still did not earn a corporate monitor and uh, the, the assignment of that. And I wonder just what your thoughts are, are in this case, and then currently with the trend this year of corporate monitors. So that's a that's an interesting point, Mike. Uh, I think we've certainly seen uh, a dearth of monitors uh, uh, appointed this year. Uh, not quite sure of the reasons, but actually with the uh, Society General case, I think we do have the specific reason, or at least a significant reason, detailed by the Department of Justice, and that's the ongoing supervision uh, by the French authorities. I think that was called out directly in the uh, uh, settlement agreements. In addition to the Department of Justice thanking the French for the cooperation and uh, really crediting them for being so aggressive in this first major prosecution from the French authorities, I think this may be uh, uh, fit into two components of what we may talk about going uh, uh, later on, which is one, going forward, uh, really the increase in internationalization of both investigations and enforcement. Uh, that's not something new, but what is new is to have the French uh, directly involved in taking the lead with this. So um, on the specific Society General case, I think we can point to the ongoing supervision by the French authorities, but uh, you do correctly note there's a, a trend that seems to be less uh, monitors uh, going forward. Uh, I think um, previously, uh, when the Department of Justice talked about monitorships, it was along the lines of um, the company had really not shown or given the department a, a level of comfort that they would implement what they'd agreed to in the settlement documents, whether that be a uh, NPA, DPA, or other. Uh, and uh, perhaps now the companies have really gotten uh, gotten that old-time religion and are working very diligently during the investigative and enforcement process to uh, uh, not only extensively remediate, but build a relationship or at least build trust so the department believes that will continue going forward. Uh, that's not simply uh, a trust. It is some verification because companies do have to report to a um, uh, to the department on regular basis, generally one-year intervals. Uh, but it is it is a self-reporting. It's not a uh, external independent integrity monitor that we saw uh, really extensively used in 2016, 2017. Yeah, and even, I mean, I guess the only case that I know of, and I know uh, this will sort of lead us into talking uh, maybe about uh, there's some observations you had with regard to three particular cases, that being Panasonic Avionics, Credit Suisse, and Dun & Bradstreet. But just remembering that, Panasonic Avionics uh, was, I think they they assigned a monitor uh, for that case. And when you, I mean, they both uh, are pretty egregious cases. Um, but uh, here in Society General, which is another, you know, sort of blatant case, systemic cases, uh, they didn't uh, uh, assign a, a monitor in it. They were comfortable with relying upon the French uh, regulators 
to monitor society general. And um, whereas the U.S. was not comfortable in, uh, you know, leaving it to a, you know, Panasonic Avionics to do a sort of self-reporting type scheme uh, and insisted on the monitor in that case. So to me, that's, you know, that's the only case that we had. And I think it was in 2016, we had eight monitors, eight cases with monitors uh, in the FCPA arena. So to me, this indicates there's there's some, you know, avoidance of the of the corporate monitor, or maybe it reflects what you're talking about, which is the internationalization, where you know there are situations where the government will rely upon sort of their partners to uh, regulate uh, these companies. So they must have you know worked out a good they must have a good working relationship to allow society general to. Uh, you know, be subject to uh, the French regulators. Uh, and I won't even try to pronounce it. It's Parquet National Financier. PNF uh, is the agency, must be that regulates banks uh, in, uh, in, uh, in France. So anyway, so, uh, so we sort of, you know, we see sort of the internationalization. But let's, there, Tom, I know that uh, from your perspective, you thought there were some interesting observations from the Panasonic avionics case, uh, the Credit Suisse case, which was the you know Princeling's prosecution, and the Dun and Bradstreet uh, case, which occurred in China. Uh, but what what do you see? What do you see the themes, at least in those three cases, and the importance of those three cases? So, Mike, uh, Dun Bradstreet was the first case, first major case resolved after the implementation of the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy. The case began about five years ago, so obviously started before um, the policy came into effect. But Dun and Bradstreet was able to garner the benefits from the new corporate enforcement policy, and you really can't say enough about the work of uh, CCL Lewis Sapperman and his team, and indeed the entire company, to uh, self-disclose to extensively cooperate with the government, uh, remediate to uh, to the level that uh, Lewis Sapperman and Dun & Bradstreet won an SCCE award for their uh, compliance program, I think, in 2016, um, and then uh, remediate, or excuse me, uh, 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 disgorge any uh, ill-gotten gain or profit disgorgement. Uh, so they received a full declination. Um, Panasonic Avionics uh, is... Uh, I thought just a horrendous, egregious set of facts. We had C-suite involvement. We had a, a slush fund run by the CEO of the, of the American Business Unit. Uh, we had CFO signing off on this slush fund. Uh, we had no uh, self-disclosure. Uh, but even with, and, and that just scratches the surface of, of the facts, um, a lot of other egregious facts as well. Uh, but here, Panasonic uh, Avionics was able to obtain a 25% discount off the minimum uh, sentencing guideline range. Uh, and then we had Credit Suisse. And Credit Suisse, we had pervasive corruption around the uh, hiring of family members of Chinese government officials and high officials of state-owned enterprises in their China business unit, uh, both intentional um, uh, um, dissembling and uh, hiding from uh, the corporate office of what they were doing, um, and uh, to the point where uh, uh, it was one one candidate's resume was so poor they rewrote the resume for her. Yeah, I liked that. Um, that was a funny. That, thing. Yeah. Uh, but Pan, uh, excuse me, Credit Suisse uh, really was lacking in many of the factors under the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy. Did not self-disclose. Uh, it did apparently uh, uh, cooperate somewhat during the investigation. It did um, remediate somewhat, and it did scorch profits. Uh, even with its really lack of fulfilling all four of the requirements, it even even Credit Suisse received a discount of 15% off the minimum of the sentencing guidelines. So uh, for those, a um, uh, little quick refresher is the Department of Justice comes up with a potential range of fines. And uh, traditionally, we'd seen that fine within that range of a high of a low. Well, now we're seeing discounts uh, for uh, companies like Credit Suisse, um, 
off the minimum uh, end. Now, this has been going on for some time, as I indicated previously. Uh, so this is not new. What's new is it's formalized in the U.S. Attorney's Manual per the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy. So I was really interested that these three cases I thought were great illustrations of the new policy um, going forward. And I think it, it provides not only transparency, but greater certainty uh, in in something that is, is clearly an, more of an art than a science, but greater certainty for the uh, for companies, for compliance practitioners, and for people uh, outside counsel like yourself who are advising companies, Mike, that if you engage in these, even even if you don't self-disclose, if the government comes knocking and sends you a subpoena or says, well, we have some questions about X, um, you can still make a pretty good comeback. And under the FCPA corporate enforcement policy, even without self-disclosure, uh, you're uh, eligible for an up to 50% uh discount off the minimum sentencing guidelines. So Panasonic, Avionics, and Credit Suisse both received less than the 50%, but they received discounts, even with uh, the conduct that they engaged in. So I think this is a, an interesting development. Uh, certainly, it's what the department said they were going to do, what Rod Rosenstein said he wanted to do in uh, incorporating that uh sayings or, or speech into the U.S. Attorney's Manual. So I think this is a very positive development uh, from uh, three of the four biggest cases uh, that came out uh, uh, this year. Yeah, and look, uh, and I wanted to sort of follow up. There are a couple of points I wanted to make because I think you, you're on to something which is really important. In other words, let's say, uh, you know, a company does involuntarily disclose. So then that leaves, they fully cooperate and Frankly, practitioners in the FCPA area are getting pretty consistent in terms of knowing what uh, cooperation requires and all of that. Um, and so one of the areas where I do think that people are, um, you know, where I sort of see the variables uh, have to be in the remediation area. And in the remediation area, um, I just see that the, that there's a greater focus on it, or that there are that the decisions they're articulating uh, in greater detail why somebody gets the remediation credit or doesn't get the remediation credit, or has some you know or some credit taken off. So, for example, um, you know, going back to 2016, Embraer. Uh, lost remediation credit, uh, some a significant amount of remediation credit because they didn't punish uh, the senior executive who supposedly was aware uh, of the uh, bribery conduct and didn't respond to that uh, and didn't do anything about it. Um, I can and and I think what we're seeing is in Panasonic, for example, the CEO and the CFO were ultimately let go, but it took them a while to fire them, even though they were the ones sort of orchestrating uh, a big part of the scheme that was going on. Um, and in, in uh, Credit Suisse, uh, I thought there was a, a difference, again, on the remediation in that there were people who weren't um, punished or uh, fired, but they were, I guess, reprimanded. Uh, you know, with a note to their file. And the department didn't, or, you know, the department and the SEC didn't seem too pleased with that as sort of your remediation presentation. If anything, the, the word is, if you're caught and you're involved, you should be fired. And uh, whether you're a high-ranking official or a mid-official, I think the expectation is not only are you going to fire the people involved, but then you're going to discipline those who had supervisory responsibility or should have known uh, type of conduct, that there has to be some financial or some you know, meaningful uh, disciplinary action taken. But I, I see a lot of variance in the way that the, the um, uh, companies are performing on the remediation front. And I think the department is and the SEC are holding people really uh, uh, accountable here in that area. What do, you, do you see the same thing, Tom, or not? No, you're on to something, Mike, and uh, it's really um, specifically around this termination versus a uh, letter of reprimand 
or uh, really not doing anything. So um, in Panasonic Avionics, as you correctly noted, you do have the uh, uh, top two folks from the business unit leave the company, although it took them a while to do it. Um, Credit Suisse did not terminate uh, a large number of the employees involved, and they were specifically called out by that. But let me tie that into one of the the themes we have throughout this podcast, Mike, which is consistency. Uh, This has been a consistent approach from the Department of Justice uh, going back, I think, at least to 2015. And uh, certainly you uh, uh, acknowledge Embraer, who did not terminate those involved. But uh, before that, we had LATAM, L-A-T-A-M, Latin American Air, who also did not terminate um, a uh, senior executive who was involved in the bribery and corruption. And and, uh, they uh, did not receive full credit or full discount because of that. So uh, once again, I'm seeing a lot of consistency. Uh, What is new perhaps though, is that that consistency is now quantified. And that to me was one of the significant uh, things about the Credit Suisse uh, uh, enforcement action was we had a quantification that uh, because there was no uh, termination of several of those involved in the bribery and corruption, uh, the discount was even lower than Panasonic Avionics, who arguably had uh, much more egregious facts uh, between Panasonic Avionics, 15% discount to Credit Suisse's, uh, excuse me, Panasonic Avionics, 25% discount to Credit Suisse's 15% discount. So that's that's a great point. That's a great catch. And I think uh, that communicates to the compliance community and corporations that the termination of recalcitrant uh, employees is is very important to the government. And if it's important to the government, it needs to be important to the compliance community. Right. I totally agree with that. One one last point, uh, Tom, before we go to sort of our predictions or, or hopes for the next half of the year, but uh, was um, one of the points from the Panasonic's case that really uh, underscored for me and I what I would like to see compliance practitioners spend a little bit more time on, and I, I write about this often, is the devastating effect of C-suite misconduct. So in PAC, we had, in the you know Panasonic case, we had the CEO, the CFO running this scheme. And by the way, they, you know, remember that in the Panasonic case, they hired a Middle Eastern uh, consultant who was currently working for the state-owned uh, regulator that uh, responsible for uh, airplanes. Uh, and they hired him as a consultant beginning while the, uh, the the official was carrying out official duties with a direct impact on Panasonic Avionics business. I mean, it was just a, it's not just a bribe. They established a formal relationship with this uh, and called him a consultant and then continued that relationship after he left uh, the state-owned enterprise. Uh, the state, the foreign official did. So they set this up, and he, uh, the the CEO, set it up. Had a fund that was not audited properly at the C-suite level, through which he paid directly uh, this uh, foreign official, and the CFO was involved in that, and obviously was engaging in criminal conduct uh, himself at that point. But this also reminded me of the year before where we had the uh, Sociedad uh, Quimica and Minera, the Chilean uh, mining company settlement for $30.5 million, where a senior executive, again, had his own fund uh, that he was not subject to auditing, and he used it to pay, uh, make payments that were ultimately bribes uh, from this, it was called a CEO account, and there were no financial controls or compliance programs that were made applicable to the C-suite. And to me, when we go back and look at risk assessments and look at, hey, how are we going to mitigate our risks, uh, if we're not looking at the C-suite and imposing financial controls that apply to every penny that goes through the C-suite, then uh, you know we're by definition, we're creating significant risks in our operations. And I thought these cases really... Uh, underscored that, particularly the Panasonic avionics about the importance of C-suite misconduct and taking that into account whenever you do a risk assessment of any sort. So I, I couldn't agree more, Mike. Okay, well, Tom, let's uh, there and and uh, I know we sort of you and I follow all this, but um, 
What do you think in terms of the rest of the year? And I'm only going to name a few names of cases. Do you think, number one, uh, I'll throw a bunch of names at you and you tell me what you think is going to happen. Uh, is Walmart going to get settled? Is Fresenius Medical, the dialysis company, going to get settled? Is uh, Microsoft has been under investigation for years. Um, do you think any of these cases are going to get settled in the second half of this year? And do you see any other cases on the horizon that you think may come through? So, Mike, I'm cautiously optimistic uh, those cases will be resolved. But um, as to the uh, eccentricities of individual enforcement actions, I think we've seen that uh, there's, uh, if not no way to predict when they may be resolved, it's very difficult to predict when they'll be resolved. But I'm cautiously optimistic. I would like to see the Walmart case finally resolved just so it's done and, you know, we can move on in terms of, the, the sort of debates surrounding uh, Walmart and the New York Times article and all of that. So um, just to make it easier, we can finally write about it and then move on. Uh, so we'll see. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, anyways, uh, Tom, hey, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Your thoughts, as always, are spot on. Uh, let me remind everybody to, uh, about Tom's book. It's, uh, it's the uh, compliance handbook. It's terrific. Uh, I myself have a copy, and it, uh, it really, in terms of having a resource for the practitioner, you, it's uh, done in a format that makes it usable, readable, and immediately uh, practical for uh, every compliance practitioner. So congratulations again, and I urge uh, everybody to take a moment and, uh, and order the book and uh, and uh, it, it's definitely worth, uh, worth getting as soon as you can. But anyways, thank you again, Tom, for everything. Great to have you, and look forward to having you again uh, on the show again. Thank you, Mike. Thank you.